Welcome to the Refined Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Kat Harris. This podcast is designed to hold space for honest conversations. From purity culture to faith, sexuality, relationships, identity, culture, deconstruction, and more. My hope is to look doubt in the face, be curious, seek God, and ask meaningful questions to address any elephant in the room with openness, nuance, and grace. I won't pretend to be an expert and definitely don't have all the answers. And though it may feel easier and more comfortable to exist in the black and white, I invite you to discover God with me in the gray and unexpected spaces. So whoever you are, whatever you do or don't believe, you are welcome here and have a seat at this table. Make sure you're subscribed to the Refined Collective Podcast on iTunes. So each week when a new episode drops, it'll download straight to those devices. And while you're at it, if you feel so inclined, leave us a five-star rating and written review. It would be so helpful to get our message out there. All right, let's go ahead and get to it. Welcome to the Refined Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Kat Harris, and a special shout out and thank you to Newsstand Studio at One Rock Center in Manhattan, New York for sponsoring and producing this episode of my podcast. Y'all are the bomb.com. And if you don't live in New York, or if you do live in New York and you want to stay in touch with what Rockefeller is doing, they are constantly doing wonderful things, like turning their ice skating ring into a roller rink for the summer. So you definitely have to check that out. But follow them along on Instagram at Rockefeller Center or on Twitter at Rock Center NYC. Also, we have so many fun things going on over on the Patreon community. And really, you know, I talk about the Patreon community every week on the podcast. And I hope you don't feel like I'm just trying to like weasel money out of you (laughs) to join my subscription service. But really, I feel more and more what the space that I am holding on the interwebs and in my community is a space for those who really do love God, but don't necessarily feel like they fit into the church world anymore, don't really know what that looks like, and don't really know how to find their people. I'm telling you, this Patreon community is that space where we're asking hard questions, where we're in community, where we're dialoguing with one another. And every month I do a live free Zoom coaching call. And it's just been so beautiful and sweet to know that, oh my gosh, I'm not the only one out here figuring this stuff out. So please come along, join us. It's patreon.com slash The Refined Collective. It's $3 a month to join. And we'd love to see you there. If you don't want to join, it's okay. Still love you. You are welcome here. I grew up in Southern Christian culture, which means I was given an abstinence-only approach to sex ed, aka Hello Purity Movement. (laughs) All I was really taught was don't have sex until marriage, shut down your sexual desire so you don't tempt yourself for others, and everything but kissing and dating is off the table. And then one day you'll get married, a flip will switch, and you'll magically know what to do in the bedroom, and you'll have all the orgasms you want with your spouse. Because I didn't have a clue about sexual experiences over the years, I'd end up in situations I didn't want or expect because I was never taught what those scenarios were. On top of that, because I was never taught how to strengthen my muscle of consent, there were many times I said yes when I really wanted to say no, and even times I said no when I really wanted to say yes. 
Many of my sexual experiences were confusing and laced with shame. And one thing I know for sure is God does not want me to live in shame. The idea was that if we were taught a more comprehensive sex ed, that would mean we were being given a quote-unquote hall pass to do whatever we wanted, however we wanted, whenever we wanted. Only now do I see how problematic all of that was and is. If any of this resonates with you, I'd love to invite you to my three-part sex ed workshop series with sexologist Dr. Celeste Holbrook. The workshop series will start on Tuesday, April 19th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and run for three weeks straight. In this workshop series, we'll unpack male and female anatomy, pleasure anatomy, the mechanics and biology of sex, what to expect your first time and beyond, how to navigate consent and own your voice, sexual communication, theology and sex and freedom from shame, how to practice embodiment, self-pleasure, lubes and orgasms, sexual health, how to practice safe sex and contraception options. Each workshop will also include a live Q&A with Dr. Celeste Holbrook and myself to answer any and every sex ed question you have. Nothing is off the table. If you want to learn more, you can sign up and go to bit.ly slash TRC sex ed. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash TRC sex ed. Let's take ownership over this area of our lives. All right. Next, I am really excited about this podcast episode because, well, first of all, I'm going to fangirl on this woman. I have read all of her books over the years, and I cannot wait for you to get to know her. We have the one and only Shauna Nyquist. She is the New York Times bestselling author of Cold Tangerines, Bittersweet, Bread and Wine, Savor, Present Over Perfect, and I guess I haven't learned that yet, which is her newest book that I just read. It's lovely. I laughed. I cried. Every emotion. She is married to Aaron, and they live in New York City with their sons, Henry and Mac. Shauna is a bookworm, a storyteller, and a passionate gatherer of people, especially around the table. Welcome to the podcast, Shauna. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being here. And, you know, before we started recording, I told you I had coffee today, and I gave up caffeine like two years ago. And this morning I woke up and I was like, I'll just have a little cup. I feel like I'm the Energizer Bunny right now. So (laughs) if at any point you're like, cat, slow your roll, slow down. I will do that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm just impressed that you don't have coffee every day because that's not a thing I could do, I don't think. Well, listen, I lived in New York for upwards of a decade and that city has so much energy in it. And I started struggling with anxiety really, really intensely. And basically, I did anything and everything to, before going to medication, gave up alcohol, sugar, dairy, gluten, like all the things. And the one thing I wasn't ever willing to give up was coffee. And then right before the pandemic, I was having like another real hard bout of anxiety. And I was like, okay, the one thing I haven't tried is giving up caffeine. And I did that. And I gave myself like eight weeks to like wean off of caffeine. And it has been life-changing. 
I still have decaf. Like I'll have a decaf Nespresso pod in the morning because I'm definitely not one of those people that's like, oh my gosh, I got onto green tea and it changed my life. I'm like, it tastes like grass water. Like it's gross. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So that has been my caffeine journey. I would love to hear about what your life in New York City looks like. You talk about in your book, you know, growing forward and this idea that it's, you know, it's never too late to grow. And I feel like the past few years for you have been so much transition. Like, I feel like it's one thing to like move to New York City when you're like bright eyed and bushy tailed, like 20 years old, like, let me take on this city. And yet you decided to do that with your husband and kids. And I imagine you went from like a nice big old house and now you're in the closet world of NYC. So what's that been like and what inspired your move and what's life like for you these days? It's great. We love it here. We absolutely love it here. Um, and but I'll, you know, answer all the rest of those questions, but <laughs> the the current what our life is like, um, we do live in a tiny little apartment, but it has high ceilings and big windows and it opens out onto a courtyard that we share with our neighbors and our kids love their schools. They both go to public school in Manhattan and they love it and they love their teachers and they have good friends and um we, we, uh, my little guy's going to a Broadway show tomorrow night with some of our neighbors. Um, we just feel lucky every day to Mm. be here, but you know, to back up for a million different reasons. Um, we knew that it was time to leave our hometown. Uh, We lived outside Chicago for a long time. My husband knew many years before I did that it was time Mm. to leave. And that was a really tricky season between us because he wanted to leave and I wanted to stay. And he was right. It was time for us to make a change. And so we did like the total like Goldilocks, like, is this our new home? Is this our new home? And there were a lot of cities and parts of the country that we had, that we thought like, oh, this, this is probably it. This is probably, and we just, um, nothing fit right. And in the meantime, we have friends here in New York who had invited us every summer to come visit and be a part of their church community um, for a couple of weeks. And we never really considered it like, like sort of like you were saying, like who moves to New York with their family in their 40s? That's like not a thing. <laughs> and so we didn't consider it. And meanwhile, we're like, maybe it's San Francisco, maybe it's Seattle, maybe it's Madison. No, 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 no. And we were sort of the last ones to realize, like, of course it's New York. Of course we keep coming back here. Of course we, all four of us, are really love and feel like a great affection for this city and this part of the world. And so um, it seemed sort of crazy at the time. And uh, initially when we moved, we thought it'll be maybe two years. Aaron, we, mm. you know, came for Aaron to get a graduate degree. But he has that degree and we don't want to go anywhere else. We love it. We, we, this is our home now and we never think about um, leaving. And so it has been uh, a great adventure for our family, a really inspiring, mm. energizing time and place. Yeah. I think what comes up for me when you're sharing that is just this idea of at any point we have the permission to rewrite the story. And I'm 36. I left New York during the pandemic. I never thought I would leave. And what I can resonate with is, you know, what it sounds like is that maybe your expiration date was a few years before. Mm -hmm. Who knows? And I think for me, leaving New York, like I kind of sensed it was probably time to leave, but I was so attached to what I thought my life would look like. I thought, oh, I'm going to move to New York for five years. 
I'm going to chase my dreams as an editorial photographer. I did. I have this, you know, the refined woman, this other entity as well. And and I'm going to meet my husband and I'm going to leave. And we're going to have this like sexy, fun life for our first year or so of marriage in New York. And then we're going to leave together. And for me, I felt like I couldn't even wrap my mind around leaving New York single because I had always thought, oh, I'm definitely going to leave with someone. If there's ever another season, it has to look exactly like this. And then I realized like when I did leave that my expiration date was probably a few years back and I was tired, exhausted, kind of bitter. Like I felt like New York like sucker punched me out the door. And so I'm wondering like if you felt that at all too, like, man, were there things that you're like, man, I feel like I thought it was going to go this way. And so like, I don't want to let go. Like, Years ago, one of my mentors said, there's two types of people. There's people like when the Titanic hit the iceberg, like immediately get on the rescue boats. And then there's other people who are like, I'm on this boat until it sinks to the bottom of the ocean. And I'm kind of that latter person. Like I need to like learn when to let go earlier. Oh, I'm a hundred percent. I am a hanger honor. I'm a holder (laughs) honor. I stay too late. I stay too long. Um, One of the phrases that's been really important to me in this season is let go or be dragged. Mm. Like I read that for the first time and I was like, oh, oh heavens. (laughs) I think I've been dragged a handful (laughs) of times over the last several years because I didn't want to let go. I had a picture Mm. of how I thought my life would be forever. My same hometown, um, you know, I'm 45 now and we moved when I was, I guess, 42 or 41. And it was right around the time when most of the people in my hometown kept using the word forever house. Mm. They were building their forever house or, you know, whatever. And I, I was, re- I was ready for our, our forever house. Um, mm. and I was wrong. And I'm really yeah. glad that, um, I'm glad that my husband didn't give up on me, not, give up on our partnership. We weren't at that point, but didn't give up on this dream that he had, that he believed would be the best thing for all of us. Mm -hmm. Um, He was right. It has been the best thing for all of us. And I was sort of the last to know. And Mm -hmm. I hope that one of the things I've learned through the last couple of years is to look for those possible signs of expiration dates a little sooner. Mm -hmm. It's okay to make a change when things end or when things run their course and Mm -hmm. not everything is forever. And Mm -hmm. it's okay for uh, for us to change those stories in the middle, just like you said, yeah. it's okay to say, um, I thought we were going to be here for X amount more years, but the signs yeah. are really clear that it's time to go now. I mm-hmm. hope I'm better at seeing those signs uh, in a lot of different areas, in my career, in my friendships, and in, in all kinds of things. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I am definitely a uh, stay on the boat until it's underwater kind of person. <laughs> well, and I think for me, growing up in like you know, kind of mainstream evangelicalism, And maybe some also being a product of a child of an addict, like that hanging on thing, that not letting go. For me, there's been a piece in there that's like, I want to be my word or I want to be my integrity. I want to finish strong because it's so easy to start something. It's a lot more difficult and it takes a lot more to actually finish what you said you were going to do. And so something that I've been like kind of navigating through is what's the difference between letting go and giving up? Because there's two areas where I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Like one is like, I haven't gone to church in two years and I've been deconstructing a lot, which I wish there was a better word for that, but I think a lot of people are. And so kind of like, 
letting go of some of the systems of the church that I'm like, I can't unsee this anymore. Like, I love Jesus. I love God. But like, I have to give this up or I have to let go of this certain part of my faith that I thought 10 years ago would make me not a Christian anymore. You know, so I feel like there's that part. And then also like in dating, like, can I be clear about what I want and surrender to the process of life and not give up? Because I feel like letting go can feel like, well, screw this. I'm not going to try at all. Like, screw the church. Screw dating. There's no good guys out there. It's like one extreme or the other. And I'm curious, like, what you think of that and, like, how do we let go without just being like, F the whole system or F the whole process? I think those are great questions. And I think what you already know, obviously, and the way you framed the question, um, you know it's not one or the other. It's not... Mm -hmm. Um, effort and walk away, or you have to keep going with a hundred percent business as usual. That just doesn't, mm. doesn't work. Right. And so it's about the nuance and the middle space. And I would say it's about discernment and seeking wisdom from people that you trust. These are questions that aren't, don't have the same answers for every one of us, right? A friend of yours could be dating and the right thing for them to do is stay in a relationship, even though they kind of want to walk. And mm. the exact right thing at this exact same time for you might be the opposite because you're mm. different people with different hearts and different makeups and you're dating different people. So there's mm. no one right answer, but it comes down to discernment and the wisdom of the people that you surround yourselves with, yourself with. Mm. And I think there's something sometimes in... Um, some more traditional uh, veins of Christian culture that tells us we can't trust ourselves, right? right? I think that's really damaging. I think, um, and I think it's theologically inaccurate. If we believe that God's spirit lives within us, lives in our hearts, and can guide us and speak to us, then um, we can trust our feelings and our intuition mm -hmm. and our deep sense of things. And so I think to recover a sense of respecting our own ability to discern what's right, mm -hmm. and then checking it with a couple wise people in our lives. It's not just like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? You know, there is a knowing inside of you that you can trust. Mm. That's really powerful. And I agree. I think the phrase that I've kept saying to myself, and my friends in this time is like, I feel like the road back to myself is also the road back to Jesus. And I feel like my more conservative friends are like, what are you saying, Kat? Like, are you God? Are we all God now? And I'm like, no, I honestly feel like my whole sort of Christian life, I, it was kind of rooted in this, like, I'm this dirty rag. I am dead at the bottom of the ocean. And like, God picked me up from the bottom of the ocean and resuscitated me back to life with irresistible grace, you know, like, hello, Calvinism 101. And there was just nothing good in me. And my heart was deceitful above all things. And in yet in the last six, seven years going through therapy and emotional intelligence trainings and workshops, realizing like, first of all, like, that can't be true <laughs> because there are amazing people all over the world doing beautiful work who would never identify as people of faith that are moving the world towards better and better places. And also like I can look back at my own story and say like, wow, like I said yes in this scenario, whether it was church, dating, career, when I knew in my body, I knew in my body that this wasn't like the whole decision you know, and, and yet like 
as much as I love the gray in that middle space, I still feel like there's so much in my wiring and probably because it's what's comfortable. That's like, wait, no, but like one plus one does equal two. (laughs) There still has to be this like black and white to figure this out. And I think years ago, if you would have said what you just said to me, I would have said like, well, aren't you just saying for us all to live our own truth? And so then where is truth and how do we find truth if we're all just living our truth? And I'm wondering if it's just not that binary. I would agree with you that it's not that binary. I would also Mm -hmm. say truth is truth and our bodies don't lie about it, right? And I don't believe our intuition, if we listen to it deeply and faithfully, will ever lead us outside of the bounds of God's vision for humanity, right? Mm -hmm. God's primary perspective toward us and position toward us, his primary posture toward us in the world is our belovedness. We were Mm -hmm. created for and out of love. And any theology or practice or religion that, that forces you to divorce yourself from that identity and only to only see your sin, only your worthlessness. I think Mm -hmm. that's limited. I think that's only getting, that's not seeing the full picture. Of -hmm. course, we all fall short and we all um, make mistakes that hurt each other and hurt ourselves. We all fall Mm -hmm. short of love, but belovedness is written into our identity. And that's the starting place for me. And any religious experience that, that pushes too far away from that doesn't feel like a place I want to be. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. I think something I've been processing through in the last few years is like, wait a second. I feel like we started the book at chapter three, but it started in chapter one. Like we are the poema of God, like God breathed life into humanity and called us very good. And are we allowed to be not totally, utterly broken? Can there be goodness in us? And can there still be a need for God in that or a desire for God? And It's interesting when you start unpacking the like the one-liners that are very like preachable from a pulpit or like Instagrammable, but then you're like, wait a second, what are you really saying there? What's really being said there? And Mm -hmm. wait a second, like maybe I don't agree with that. And is that okay? Have you read um, Danielle Schroyer's book, Original Blessing? No. I love it so much. I totally recommend it. And it's essentially um, a theological case for original blessing as opposed to original sin. And it's amazing. She is brilliant and it's very well researched and it's a Mm. gorgeous book. And it really, really helped me because I grew up, you know, in Illinois and Michigan was like, you know, the land of Calvin. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) And um, Calvin College was in our town and, and it's a great place, but that theology gets in pretty deep. And um, her book really helped me sort of separate myself from that like total depravity idea. Yeah. For me, I grew up in Texas, you know, and lived with the people that started Promise Keepers and love them dearly and love all of that. And like, it was like, I always thought, oh, to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus means Calvin. It means reformed. It means original sin. It means inerrancy of scripture. And I feel like every week I'm like, wait, does the Bible have to be inerrant? Like, what if it's not? Like, what does that say? Like, what if I don't believe in original sin? Like all these things that honestly, there's some days where I'm like, maybe I'm not a Christian anymore. Or maybe I'm a more honest version of a follower of Jesus than I've ever given myself permission to be. And what if that's okay? 
like, is that okay if I go outside of what I was always told? Like, this is the way to do it. And do I have the space for myself to be on a journey? And I feel like the external validation part of me is like, like, I don't want to go to your party anymore, but I still want to be invited. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I still want to know that I have your approval. So that's been something that's like been hard to just kind of admit, like, wow, I still really want, quote unquote, these people to think I'm credible. And I still want to have a seat at their table. But if I really think about it, I don't want to sit at that table. I don't want to go to that party. And I didn't really have fun at that party. (laughs) So why do I want to go back? You know, I think one of the things that we don't talk about enough in our conversations about deconstruction is how lonely it can be. That you're not just experiencing some of the interior chaos of uh, like beliefs, but it's also the belonging part of it. It, Mm. It's really painful to walk away from some of those relationships whenever anyone talks with me about deconstruction. And I think that, Mm. I mean, we're, we're pushing the outer limits of how useful that word can be. It it means like almost everything at this point. Right. right. (laughs) One of the things I always say is find a couple people to travel with, even Mm. if they're not at the exact same point on the journey, you don't have, your ideas don't have to line up, but we aren't made to go through these kinds of things alone. Mm -hmm. Another thing I would also say, and So I watched my mom go through a very thorough, very long deconstruction process when I was in high school and she was in her 40s. And what it gave me was a really deep respect for her bravery and her Mm -hmm. devotion. The easy Mm -hmm. thing to do is walk away, right? That's the easy thing. Mm -hmm. The hard thing is to fight for something more beautiful and more true and Mm -hmm. more deeply held inside of you. Um, Mm -hmm. I really see deconstruction as an act of faithfulness, not faithlessness. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I I think it it takes a lot of courage to move towards the thing or the things or the questions that might unravel the whole thing. That's a scary thing. And if God is real, then what I've come back to in this whole, gosh, it's honestly, I'm like, I feel like I've been quote unquote deconstructing since the first day I like became a Christian. I'm like, well, what about that? And why do I believe that? And what about that? But like, if God's real, then God does not have a fragile ego. And I would say, I don't think you can pull a string and unravel it. Like I, I think God's goodness and God's comfort and His graciousness and His love for us you can't pull a string and and the whole thing doesn't fall apart or it wasn't real to begin with, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Questions don't scare him. They don't take his power. They don't, like I just, and one of the things that's been so valuable for us is um, seeing how much bigger the faith community is beyond the ways that we grew up. Yeah. So like right now, we live on the campus of an Episcopal seminary. And so I literally watch out my window. I watch people learn how to become priests, mm. like I in the courtyard. Like I see them the first day that they put their robes on. And I see the first day that they administer the Eucharist or the first day that they lead the liturgy. And it's so different than the way I grew up. But what it shows me, some of what you were talking about, about the, the kind of the very specific world you grew up in, it's mm-hmm. just one tiny slice of this like yeah. much larger community. And you might be uncomfortable in that particular community for a while, that's okay. The bigger community 
has much broader boundaries. Yeah. Um, there's a lot that I learn from the Episcopal community in terms of mystery and mm. beauty and tradition. And it gives a little more space for questions and for not yeah. having answers. And that's been a real gift to me in this season. And so I think it's not in or out, all or nothing. Yeah. Um, there are so many really beautiful, really honest ways to be a Christian. Yeah. And a lot of times we can't see that from right, right where we are, but it's so much bigger and so much more beautiful than we imagine. Yeah. And I feel like it would have to be, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think what I've, I think about is at the end of everything, I feel like if God is who God, I think God says God is, then God would have to be way bigger with a love way more expansive, with a reach far greater than I could imagine. Um, otherwise, that's not really God, uh, God right? Mm-hmm. Like, God has to be bigger than my understanding. God has to be outside of my rhetoric or what I think is right or wrong. I'm, in, I'm 36 years old. Like, I know nothing. Like, I know nothing. Uh, I know very few things. I just read this book by Brian Zond called um, When Everything's on Fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's lovely. It's great. Oh, so good. And then I bought all of his other books. Like, he is a, <laughs> he is a beautiful writer. He's yeah. so good. But he talks about the journey from literalism to analytical to mystical. And how, you know, when you're a child, it's like you need to take things literally. Like the stove is hot. Don't touch it. Like... There was Adam and there was Eve and there was an apple. And like this story is literal because we're trying to figure out what it means to live in the world. And then we move to the analytical part of, all right, but like, what does this really mean? What's the context here? And, you know, what is the Bible really saying? What's the Greek? What's the Hebrew? And I feel like I was in that world for so long. And he's saying, but the next step is is mysticism, which is not just a a literal experience or analytical like mind logic experience, but this full body expression. And I feel like I've always been like, ooh, mysticism, like that's weird and woo-woo and crystals and all the things. And now I'm like, I just feel like I resonated with that so much, like, and so much opens up when I open up to the idea that God could be interested and curious about my full body expression of experiencing God, myself, and others. I think that's absolutely true. And I think as we age, we can either get more certain or more curious. And I always want to land on the side of the more and more curious, more and more willing to be wrong, more and more willing to learn, and less and less certain that that I've got the the corner on truth. Mm, that's so good. That That's a quote that belongs in a book. <laughs> <laughs> Someone should write a book about that. Someone should write a book about that. Your book title is, I guess I haven't learned that yet. And just the title alone, I was like, this is going to speak to my heart language. And I just wanted to ask, like, where did that phrase come from for you? Like, why is this idea of, ah, I haven't learned that before? Like, why has that become important to you? Well, the phrase was one that we adopted in our family, just um, trying to help our kids through the move process. You know, Mm -hmm. everything was new. And I noticed they were starting to get a little like, okay, yeah, everything's new, but like, Am I not catching on fast enough? Am I falling behind? Am I making too many mistakes? Is there something wrong with me? Am I dumb? And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, we need um, some perspective on this. And so mm-hmm. I wrote that that phrase. I guess I haven't learned that yet. And I put it on a white piece of paper and hung it up in our like bare-walled apartment. And I said, all four of us are going to say that every day. That's a goal. 
Like the goal is to have some experience throughout the day Mm -hmm. where you say to yourself, I guess I haven't learned that yet. And you don't penalize yourself about it and you don't shame yourself. You don't feel badly about it because if you didn't learn it, it just means you haven't learned it yet. It means you still can. There are unlimited things we can still learn. We can still master. We can still figure out. And you're not alone. You can ask for help. Um, When I, right in that same season, when that phrase became so important to me, I went and got my hair done, which is, you know, like a big deal in a new city. You're meeting like your new person. Totally. Um, (laughs) And so I met a guy and he was so nice and his name was Colt. Um, And I asked him, he was like, had been in the city for maybe three years. And I said, okay, what advice would you give to me? Like, I, I don't know anything. How should I do this? And he said, don't be afraid to look like a tourist or ask for help. Because he said when he first got here for the first six months, he was so self-conscious about people thinking he was a tourist or not. And he just didn't know how to do things. So he didn't ask anyone. He's like, I didn't take the subway. I didn't hail a cab. I didn't, I didn't know basic things about how to get around in the city because I didn't want to ask for help and then blow my cover and have people think, God forbid I was a tourist. Mm. And I took that so seriously. I was like, remember what Colt taught me? I ask, I still to this day, I ask people everywhere all the time, hey, I don't know how to do this. Can you help me? Mm-hmm. Hey, I haven't figured this out. Can you help me? And what I have found is people love to be asked for help. They love knowing something that can be useful for someone else. Mm-hmm. And they love it when you care about their city. And it's such a great way to connect with another human. If I have to figure it out all on my own, like face down, just like into my phone, Mm -hmm. like, oh, I got to figure it out. I'm missing opportunities to connect and to receive some from someone else's base of knowledge. And I'm putting all the pressure on myself to know things I shouldn't necessarily even know. So this spirit of curiosity has sort of like loosened up every part of my life. It's, it's made me more flexible, um, more willing to try something and get it wrong. Um, more free to stop with someone on the street and say like, Hey, can you help me with this? I feel like Mm -hmm. it's changed, it's changed my writing. It's changed our marriage. It's changed my perspective and approach to faith and parenting. It's sort of the perspective shift I needed to -hmm. move into a really new season of life. Man, I hear that. And to also, let's like toot NYC's horn for a second, because I feel like New Yorkers get a really bad rap. It's like, oh, people in New York are, you know, they're crass. They're not not friendly. I mean, I lived there for eight years and I'm still there like two weeks a month for work. And I have never met a person that I stopped and asked for help that didn't help me. Mm-hmm. I think New Yorkers are even more friendly then we give them credit for. Like, I mean, I've walked with tourists like three blocks and be like, this is how you get there. Like, mm-hmm. you know, people are actually way nicer. And to your point, I think we all long for a connection and it's such a human need and desire. And when we invite other people into that process, it creates these little moments of connections in our day, even if it's just like, ah, like which train is uptown? <laughs> like, you know, Totally. And I, I think, you know, it is, it's really different than the Midwest or the South in that the way people interact with you, it's not as like um, kind of flowery, you mm-hmm. know, it is extremely brusque and to mm-hmm. the point. And <laughs> when we first got here, that sounded mean to me because I'm so used to like the Midwestern, like, hey, how are you? This is who I am. Do you want to sit down? Let's spend like 15 minutes just chatting about our day and then we'll get to the point. New Yorkers are like uptown or downtown. What is it? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. It's not, <laughs> it's not mean and it's not unkind. It's just fast 
and clear. Mm -hmm. And once you switch that in your mind, you're like, these are the most big hearted people I've ever encountered. It just sounds different when you come from a different part of the country. Absolutely. And now that I've I've moved back to the South, or I don't know, I just read this whole article yesterday that Texas isn't in the South. <laughs> and I'm like, whatever. I move back to the South. And I, I forgot this thing in the South that I always hated is I don't like the flowery. Like, I think in New York, I always know, I know exactly where I stand with this person. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, the South or, you know, even... Christian culture can be a lot of like, bless your hearts, where you're like, you're, are you really just like patting me on the head saying you like stupid little idiot? You know, I love like really just knowing, oh, this is where I stand with this person. And it's as opposed to like, oh, hi. Oh my gosh. I love that. And I'm like, I think you don't love that, but I feel like you feel like you need to say that. So I definitely like, I appreciate, I appreciate the honesty. I want to go back to this. Like, I guess I haven't learned that thing yet because I mean, the way you describe it, the way you talk about it, I mean, it's like, of course, like, yes, like, of course, I don't know everything. Of course, I want to be in a posture of, I I could be wrong about anything and everything. And yet, I feel pressure. I've only written one book, and I feel pressure. <laughs> and like, here, you've written for like, what, like 20 plus years now? Mm-hmm. And something that I have struggled with is like, I resonate most with the people who are talking from that space of like curiosity. And as someone with like a publisher breathing down my neck, I do feel pressure to like have, well, three hacks or this thing, or like I'm allowed to be in process to an extent that they're able to sell my book still. And kind of what I've shared with my poor publisher is I'm like, listen, I don't know who I am or where I'm going to be at the end of this journey. And I have a book that's out that I'm very proud of. And a year out of the publishing date, there's a lot of stuff in there that I don't even know if I agree with anymore. And so, yeah, I I feel like in that, like in that I'm like dragging my feet on my like second book proposal, my Mm -hmm. second proposal to my team because I'm like, ah, like this feels scary. And all that to say is like, I think I feel this sense of pressure as like an author and a person who has like a public voice in a way I'm to allow myself to be in process. But honestly, it feels like I have to have my shit together. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering for you, who's been in this world for a lot longer than I have and has way more influence (laughs) than I have. But what's that like for you? Like, do you feel that pressure? Do you feel like, Yeah. Yeah. What is that like for you? A hundred percent. I feel that pressure. And I think this book is my honest attempt at, I was either going to stop writing forever because Mm -hmm. the amount of stuff I didn't know felt way bigger than the amount of stuff I knew. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was either like, I have to stop having a public voice, which I frankly considered very, very seriously. or if I was going to say something, it was going to have to be from a position of empathy and connection. And um, I'm as human and troubled and putting one foot in front of the other as much as the next girl. But I knew I didn't want to have to be an expert on anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know this, the second you write a book, people like put a microphone right in front of you and assume you're an expert on things. And mm-hmm. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm not an expert. I just like typing. I like sentences. <laughs> like, I don't know anything. 
And so I really want to push back on that idea that in order to to live in public, you have to have the answers mm-hmm. and that everyone who does live in public in some way or have a public voice has all the answers. They just have a couple particular skills that make their work a little more visible. It doesn't mean uh, they inherently know more. Mm-hmm. And so I think this was my attempt at saying, I still believe in writing. I still believe in connection. Mm-hmm. I still believe in storytelling. I still believe that books can be important handholds for us in really difficult seasons. But if what you need me to be is an answer person, I can't be that. Mm-hmm. Not now and probably not ever. That's mm-hmm. not my best contribution. Yeah. Yeah. I just read Rob Bell's book, Everything is Spiritual. Mm-hmm. And in it, he kind of talks about this idea that he realizes as a pastor all those years ago that he was in this position that he had put himself in as almost this us versus them. He was like, I had positioned myself as like, I'm the person who has the answers. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I realized by doing that, first of all, it's dishonest because I don't have the answers. And then it makes it like, I'm at this higher place than those other people and they need me as opposed to what if we're all on a journey together and really dropping the act of, man, I don't have all the answers. In fact, I have a lot of these questions. And I remember when his book about hell came out years ago, I was like, man, that guy's crazy. I can't believe he did that. And now I'm like, man, what courage to be a leader that has a lot of influence to say, you know what? I'm not so sure about this anymore. I'm questioning this. like, And I don't have the answer and I don't know what it really looks like moving forward, but I can ask these questions and we can move through it together. And I used to think that that was poor leadership because I was like, I feel like he's flying this plane and he knows where he stands. And like we're, as his quote unquote congregation, the seats in the airplane and he has ejected himself with a parachute and then been like, good luck. And I thought that was irresponsible. And now I feel like what kindness to have a person who is willing to remove this like pedestal to the congregant or whatever we want to call it and just say like, hey, you're a human. I'm a human. Let's walk through this together. And like, let's allow each other to be human and in process. And I think to me, like that's leadership. Whereas I think 10 years ago, I was so threatened by that because it felt like, it just felt really scary to me. I think some of it, what it speaks to is that we can lead in different ways and Mm. our best contributions can look really different. Mm. Um, I don't think, I don't think what you're saying and I don't think what the, what the kind of a perspective that we're bringing up is, I don't think that means no one should be pastors. Mm. I think Rob's best contribution is as a, um, a question asker and mm-hmm. a possibility finder and mm-hmm. a, a a door opener and and thought provoker. I think that's where he's at his best mm-hmm. and he's brilliant and he does it really really well. And I think it's it seems to me that it works best in books and in live shows and in podcasts, but it's mm-hmm. not necessarily the right fit for week in week out pastoral leadership. Yeah. But it doesn't have to be for each of us to embrace, like I I would not be um, 
there are some things I would really love about week-to-week pastoral leadership. I would not love preaching every week. That wouldn't work well for me. And that's okay. That That's not a failure of leadership on my part. I hope mm-hmm. that I'm embracing my best contribution. In this, in this season of my life, books are my best contribution. There are other people for whom podcasts are their best contribution, or speaking, or pastoring every week. And Knowing kind of your best place for the for the season, I think, is the name of the game in this situation. Mm, yeah, that's so good. I mean, even as you say that, I'm like, I'm still trying to like figure out the like, okay, so it's not this, it's this. And what you're saying is both are good. Like both are beautiful. Mm-hmm. Both are helpful. And I instantly just go back to like wanting to find the framework, you know, and be like, okay, this is the framework. I love that. Like the, like, how can I be be the best contribution that I can be? That's really freeing. So one more, I mean, just one more light topic, (laughs) the topic of prayer. You talk about it in your book, and I really love how you express yourself in that sense. And, you know, I feel like some days I'll be like, you know, I'm by myself a lot. I live in Austin, don't know a ton of people, and I work from home. So I'll just be like talking out loud to myself like a lunatic. And I'll be like, God, I don't even know if I believe in you anymore. Like, I don't know if you're real. I don't know if you even care. And then literally like, Two seconds later, I'll just be like out loud, oh, Jesus, thank you so much for this beautiful day. And oh my gosh, like, then I start singing a worship song and I'm kind of just like, I'll like be in my house just laughing. I'm like, whoa, I have just gone in like two minutes or in 50 different places, 50 different. I don't think I believe in God anymore, but oh my gosh, God is so real. And I feel like it's just the wave that I'm on right now. And all I want to do is just let myself be on that wave and give myself permission to be on that. And in that, I've often found in this time that like God feels really far away and my prayers feel like, I say feel because, you know, my feelings aren't always real. They are real a lot of the times, but I just, I feel like a lot of silence right now. Or like sometimes I'm like, I don't know, I feel like I don't even remember how to pray like I used to. And I love prayer. Like I've always been like this like woman of prayer. And so I share that because I'm like, hey, first, can you resonate with that? And in that, like, what does prayer look like for you in a season like that or this? Well, I would say a couple different things. Yes, certainly I resonate with that. And I think most people who are people of faith and have been for a long time resonate with that. I mean, mm-hmm. there's hundreds of books have been written about people who, you know, you can call it the dark night of the soul, or you can call it a season of silence, or almost every Christian at one point or another in their lives experiences the feeling of God's silence. Mm-hmm. And I would say a lot of times when we talk about deconstruction, Sometimes what we mean is the things that used to work Mm -hmm. in terms of the things that used to make me feel kind of alive and connected to God and spiritually vibrant, Mm -hmm. those practices aren't working the same way. So it's less about like, maybe I am not a Christian and it's more the tools I have in my toolbox are not the best ones for this job. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times we grow up in one community that recommends a very small toolbox, right? Like for example, we sing worship songs and we pray um, with our own words silently in our heads and we read our Bibles. Those are our tools. Those are the Mm -hmm. things we do to feel spiritually kind of vibrant and connected. Well, 
there are so many other tools in the toolbox. And sometimes growing as a Christian is just adding in a few more, few more practices or tools. Mm. For example, breath prayer, um, mm-hmm. centering prayer, liturgical prayer, praying with a spiritual director. These are all ways to pray that m- many of us who grew up in more traditional evangelical environments didn't learn. And so it, I think it's very, very worth every time you feel that sort of emptiness or silence or desolation, asking, are there some practices that other people have been doing for a long time that I could try to work into the rotation? You know, it's like if you're a fitness person and I'm not, so it's like hilarious <laughs> that I'm even saying this, but like nobody who's like truly committed to fitness would be like, all I do is yoga the same every day for the rest of my life. It's the only thing that's ever worked. It's the only thing I'm ever going to do, right? Mm -hmm. Truly fitness-oriented people have a whole toolbox of things that they avail themselves of. Sometimes they're running and sometimes they're rock climbing and sometimes they're using resistance bands. I barely even know what that is. I don't know. But (laughs) in the same way that someone who wants to have a robust and thriving faith experience, you have to have a whole bunch of tools in the toolbox. Mm. And that's where learning from other traditions is so important. And so I would say um, breath prayer has been really important for me. I tend to be, obviously, a very word-oriented person. And so a prayer that connects my body and my spirit and my spiritual sense with just one word in and one word out Mm -hmm. is really moving for me. It's sort of acting against type, you know? Mm -hmm. For some of my friends who are the most kind of expressive through prayer, They feel a lot of loss and stuckness when their prayer lives feel silent. And then the liturgical prayers, the prayers that people have been reading and speaking for centuries, the fact that someone has already done this work and you can Mm -hmm. just sort of join into what's already happening is really, really moving and can be transformative. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of whether it's deconstruction or, or pursuing a more mature or vibrant faith as we grow, whatever term you want to use for it. A lot of it is just about being willing to learn from other traditions and try new things to see if they get you a little bit unstuck. Mm. And it's hard and it's exhausting and it's lonely, but it's such a worthwhile process. Um, There's a book, one of my favorite books. Anytime someone tells me that they're deconstructing in any way, I send them a copy of um, To Bless the Space Between Us Mm. by Father John O'Donohue. And what it is, it's, it, it, do you have it? Have you read it? No, I'm writing I'm it down. Crazy right about now. it. Okay. I'm just so crazy about it. So he has passed away, but he was an Irish Catholic priest and poet. Mm. And this book is a set of blessings. And when the way he defines the word blessing is to hold someone in a protective circle of light. Mm. I think that's a really beautiful image, right? And so these are these are blessings that he's written for people that he loves, many of them in his parish or congregation where he was serving as a priest. And it's um, for one who is exhausted, for one who is suffering, for a new home, for a new baby, for the loss of a relationship. And, and it's just like a page long. But the mm. way he uses language, it's deeply spiritual. It's deeply Christian. It's also mm. very poetic and very mystical. And for me... If you're having trouble writing your own prayers or even speaking or thinking your own prayers, they feel, these blessings feel to me like like the most loving training wheels Mm. to like give language to something your soul might want to say anyway. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, I just recommend that Mm. to absolutely everyone because it, and his, for those of us that didn't grow up 
in the Irish Catholic tradition, it's different enough to not feel like that thing we're sort of reacting against. Mm -hmm. It's like a whole different set of words and patterns. And there's some freedom and beauty in that, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And first of all, I am ordering it as soon as we get off the phone. I literally just put in like a $100 Amazon order, like my kryptonite is books. And I'm like, I'm not going to buy a book this week. Or at the airport, I'm like, you don't need a book. You Mm -hmm. have four with you. You're fine. And then I go into Hudson newsstands and I'll buy three books. And I'm like, oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So it is my kryptonite, but it's, I feel like it's a, it's a good kryptonite. I think so much of what you're saying or what I'm hearing you say is like, embracing a posture of like, I guess I haven't learned that. So a posture of curiosity, a posture of a willingness to grow, a willingness to be wrong, a willingness to have experiences. And for me, like last year, I stopped reading the Bible. And it was the first time since I had become a Christian that I wasn't reading my Bible every day. And and it was because it was too triggering. It felt like it was actually moving me away from God. And my therapist was like, my very like, quote unquote, Christian therapist was like, honestly, like, I feel like reading the Bible right now for you might be detrimental. Like, what if you gave yourself a break? And I was like, ah, like, that's weird. But then I read it and I'm like, how is Abraham like a good guy? Like, this is problematic. And so in that time, like over the last year, I still have this like time in the morning that's like my time with God every day. And it's like, I'll be like, what? I'll just like put my hands on my body and breathe and be like, God, like, how can I connect with you today? And sometimes it's going on a walk. Sometimes I feel like some of the most worshipful experiences when I'm doing yoga, moving my body, sweating. Sometimes it's just laying on the floor and listening to music. Sometimes it's writing. Sometimes it's Sometimes it's cooking a meal, like, and just letting myself experience, like, first of all, there is truth outside of the Bible. (laughs) Like, there's so much truth outside of Scripture. Or even, like, Rumi, he's definitely not—doesn't share the Christian faith, but, like, his poems, like, The Guest House, just, like, I feel like it opens my heart to God. And I think like, what a beautiful thing to pause and consider like, what are the things that light me up? What are the things that I do and experience? And what are the things that I be and embody that make me come alive? Is it possible that that aliveness is the God image being sparked in me? And what if that could be my quote unquote quiet time, as opposed to like, I got to read my Jesus calling. I got to like read this verses and then journal about it for 30 minutes. (laughs) I I mean, I think that's 100% the process that you're talking about. And that's how you're going to find your next way of being a Christian. Mm. It's by listening to the spirit within you, the Holy Spirit that God puts inside of us that is trustworthy. And um, almost everybody I encounter who goes through a process like this goes through a season Mm. where reading the Bible feels inauthentic and reminds them of a tradition that no longer is a home for them. Mm. But it doesn't stay like that forever. And I would say that's Mm -hmm. true in my experience, and that's true in the experience of so many other people that I've walked with. It's a a defined amount of time. Mm -hmm. But as, as the rest of kind of the inner architecture of your faith shifts and develops, there will be a time where going back to God's Word feels 
really like lovely and shockingly mm. beautiful and really restorative, but it doesn't have to be right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. So good. Well, Shauna, thank you so much for just being willing to dive into these questions with me and sharing your life and your story. And and thank you for this book that you just read. I devoured it. It was lovely. Let me have my fangirl moment for a minute. I first read your book, Cold Tangerines, right after college. And it was like the first time I had read a like woman of faith who I was like, I feel like I could be like that. Because I became a Christian and, you know, Southern evangelical culture. And I mean, I came out of the womb with an opinion. (laughs) Like, I came out of the womb ruffling feathers. And then I, like, became a Christian in Texas. And I was like, oh, wait, I'm supposed to be quiet. Okay, let me not have opinions. Like, ah. And I never really felt like I fit into that mold. And then reading Cold Tangerines, like, all those years ago, I was like, ah, like, I feel like, yes. Like, your heart language resonates with my heart language. And this was, gosh, 15, maybe 10, 12, I don't know how many years, 14 years before I thought I would ever write a book. I was in the fashion industry for years and never thought I would write. And then, but I always thought, man, if I ever write a book, like I wish I could write like Shauna, you know, or I wish I could like let other women feel like less alone like Shauna did. And then all these crazy things happened in my story. And I ended up signing with Chris Farabee, who I believe is your literary agent as well. I love him. Yeah. And it just felt like this like crazy full circle moment where I was like, oh my gosh, like Shauna doesn't know who I am, but like, and I had no idea that was your team until like, I think a year or so after I signed with the agency. And I was just like, I just feel like that's so cool. Like full circle moment for me. And by no means am I comparing my writing tiers at all. Like I feel like I'm a first grader when I write. I can't believe I got to write a book. But your work has just like really inspired me. And I just feel like I have like Beyonce here on the podcast with me. <laughs> like your work is just so impactful. And I'm so grateful that you have chosen to keep keep using your words for connection. Oh, well, that really, really means a lot to me. I, um, that's who Anne Lamott was for me. Um, mm, and mm-hmm. I read Traveling Mercies right after college. Mm-hmm. And I felt that same thing of like, I mm-hmm. know a lot of Christian women, but they don't look like me and sound like me or mm-hmm. think about the things I think about. Like I, I felt sort of not at home in my particular mm-hmm. tradition for a lot of reasons. Yeah. And Anne Lamott gave me there was a window all of a sudden that it was just a wall. And then all of a sudden I read that book and there was a window and I could see through it. And Mm. I felt like all my life, I'm going to be trying to live up to her and her writing Mm. and what her writing did in my life. Um, We are a part of a long tradition of, of writers who um, connect with each other and inspire each other and show each other kind of new ways to do it. So I'm really honored. That means a lot to me. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for letting me share that. I was like, I don't know if I should say this because I'm going to feel like such a dork, but (laughs) I just love your work. It's you and Madeline Ingle. Like, I feel like I read Cole Tangerines and then her circle of quiet, like her classic journals. And I was like, oh my gosh. Oh, she's incredible. I'm crazy about her. Maybe Mm -hmm. I can like do this walk, you know? Oh, I'm a huge fan. Yeah. Oh man. All right. Well, um, I will let you go, but thank you so much for your time. (laughs) Thank you. This is my pleasure. What a convo. Man, I mean, you heard it. I just had my fangirl moment with Shauna Nyquist. I love her so much. And we'd actually been planning this podcast episode for months now. And so I didn't know if it was actually going to happen. And it happened. And 
I mean, she's just the real deal. What an honest, sweet, generous, kind person. And yeah, I think what stands out to me most about the conversation is just this posture of curiosity. And I wonder if part of this, you know, deconstruction process for so many of us is like leaving certainty, which certainty can feel really safe, right? And it also can kind of be an illusion at times. Oswald Chamber years ago in his utmost for his highest has a devotion called Gracious Uncertainty. And he says, we can be uncertain of our circumstances. We can be uncertain of everything. In fact, certainty is for the common sense life, but we are a faith people and there's so much uncertainty. He says, there's so much graciousness in our uncertainty. And so what if we had the courage to let go of the illusion of certainty in our lives and embraced a posture of curiosity? Like, can God be found in the gray? Can God be the window of the room that we thought there was no windows to? Like Shauna said, that's such a beautiful picture to me. Like how she said, man, Anne Lamott to me was my window. You know, I thought I was in this windowless room that I was having fun in. And then I found a window and then I looked outside and there was this oasis outside that I could run and play in. I wonder if that is what curiosity is, having that posture as opposed to being afraid to ask the questions, afraid to open the window. What if that was the space that God met you in beautiful and unexpected ways? So take that nugget with you, chew on it, and I will see you or hear from you or talk to you next week. And don't forget, if you want to hear the episodes a week early, if you want to hear next week's episodes right now, ad-free and on video, go to patreon.com slash The Refined Collective.